This is episode 134 of Alohomora for April 25th, 2015. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to MuggleNet.com's global reread of the Harry Potter series. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Micah Tannenbaum. And I'm Allison Sigurd. And our grace this week is Grace, who has been on the show before, and you will probably recognize her as Lord Trolldemort on the forums. Welcome back, Grace. Hi, everybody. Yay, Grace is back. Yay! <laughs> I'm extremely happy to be back. <laughs> Grace, for the listeners who may not have heard your episode or don't remember you, which they should because you're a fabulous guest, uh, remind them of of who you are, your house, your, your background with Harry Potter and all of that jazz. Oh, God. Harry Potter's been an obsession for ages now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> ever since I was a little kid, just like everybody else. Um, anyway, uh, my... Look, I'm, I kind of love all four houses. I was sorted into Gryffindor, though. But um, everyone says I probably should have been a Ravenclaw. My favorite character is a Slytherin. If you guys remember, it's Lord Voldemort, because I'm insane. And um, <laughs> oh, oh, and Hufflepuff, I'm pretty sure, was probably the, the best of the houses and had the right idea. So just love all four. <laughs> Oh, that's nice. We've got mm-hmm. there's a good balance there. And of course, listeners, you may have noticed that um one of these things is not like the other. Uh we have a Mr. Micah Tannenbaum here with us today. Micah, thank you so much for stepping in and filling in all of more today since all of the rest of our cast is abroad. Or slacking. Uh, or sla- or <laughs> just yeah, being lazy. We should just be honest with the listeners. Yeah, okay, yeah. They're not even in Europe. They're all at home eating sandwiches. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be back. Uh, I don't think I've ever come on in this role as, as a host. Uh, so I've always been, uh, you know, a, a guest. So this, this is a, a big step up. So I hope that I can, uh, you know, deliver. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I mean, don't screw it up. I've never done important. this before, by the way. <laughs> no, I can't. As, as I many can, listeners have seemed to comment. Uh, I can already tell. He seems like a bit of an amateur here. Of the yeah. series have you read lacking. the books yet? <laughs> I've, I've read the chapter. Uh, oh, I wow. a, a one post-it note full of uh, ideas for this week's uh, episode. And uh, I'm just excited to, uh, to be back on. It's always good to uh, hear all your voices and uh, talk about Potter. Well, good. We're so glad to have you, Micah, and you, Grace, as well, for our discussion this week on Alohomora, which is for Chapter 16 of Half-Blood Prince, A Very Frosty Christmas. Make sure and read that chapter, listeners, before listening to the episode so you can get the most out of our discussion today. Mm -hmm. But uh, before we get to Chapter 16 of Half-Blood Prince, uh, a number of listeners sent in their comments on the last chapter that was done. Uh, the first, actually, is an audio boom, which this this is exciting because I don't know that I've ever experienced one of these before. Because <laughs> you're an old man podcaster. I'm an old man podcaster, yes. It was sent in uh, by Badger Mole Butterbeer. Which is a great uh, which is, is a new line of butterbeer to be served at the Wizarding World in the uh, coming months. Hey, y'all. I'm Badger Mole Butterbeer, and I have a question for you. Harry asking Luna to the Slug Club Christmas party has always felt a bit odd to me, though I loved it because Luna is wonderfully awesome. 
I realized on this read-through that she had just mentioned Jenny's name when Harry invited her, almost in a knee-jerk reaction. Was Harry either consciously or subconsciously imagining asking Jenny out, or was he trying to get on Jenny's good side by befriending Luna? Harry can't manage to be excited about taking Luna with him for Jenny's sake, though he tries. But is Harry trying to get trying to use this to get Jenny's attention? Thanks for listening, and I look forward to hearing your discussion. Um, I think this is an interesting idea, but I don't think he was doing it on purpose to, per se, get on Ginny's good side. Just because, I don't know if we've really seen that Ginny and Luna have become such good friends, but we do know that Luna and Harry have a friendship already established. So, mm -hmm. and his reaction to when... Jenny talks to him about it is so disappointed or not well not disappointed yeah but is it just doesn't seem at least conscious to me but I think it's an interesting mm -hmm. idea that maybe it could have been unconscious yeah yeah I mean we've been with Harry now for six books and would he really be thinking that hard about this decision? Let's be serious about this. He's a, he's a very nice guy, but he's also very genuine. Like he's not going to think of the the background repercussions of like asking someone out on a date. He's probably just going to do it and then deal with whatever happens afterwards. See, I thought I thought that was an interesting uh, suggestion because uh, the way that it the way that the it's written is that. Harry asks Luna as as Badgermole Butterbeer said after he because there's the mention of Ginny in the conversation he asks Luna like very knee jerk and then the narration pretty much has him kind of thinking like what did I just do like, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah he's like uh, he's he, that is kind I think of a Harry reaction though yeah no it's it kind of like it's kind of like he his his tongue like reacted before his head and. I, I so that I think that's an interesting explanation for that. That, it, 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 like you said, Allison, maybe an, on an unconscious level, um, he just did it because he heard Ginny's name and was just like, "Won't go bowl with me," and <laughs> then didn't <laughs> kind of realize that he was talking to Luna. But I do think there is also like you know I wouldn't want to completely destroy the genuine, um, nice action that Harry performs by asking Luna mm -hmm. to the the party it would seem sad to erase that so if he was serious though he would have invited her to uh the borough for christmas for, for christmas, christmas. yeah oh, <laughs> that would have been hilarious that's the next level we're talking about here but... meeting the family but familia <laughs> <laughs> gotta remember they're going as friends right just friends guys never been asked as a friend so <laughs> it's a friend thing you want to come to the borough as a friend? I don't even live there. <laughs> That's not even my, not even my real family. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we now we got some other uh, comments from the last chapter that were sent in on the uh, Aloha Mora site. The first one is from Hufflepuff Skyne. Is that how you say <laughs> that? Hufflepuff Skyne. Skyne. I'm sorry. Darn close. <laughs> Uh, he or she says somewhere I read, heard someone mention that 
The early attempts, like the necklace and the poison mead, were aroused. Red herrings to sidetrack people into thinking he was just a stupid kid grasping at straws while he is fixing the cabinet. Uh, I always—I guess uh, they're referring to Draco. Uh, yes. I always thought that they were genuine attempts, but the passage at the end of this chapter really cemented for me that Draco Slytherin is showing as he is planning this murder. Thoughts? I think his desperation is showing more than anything. Oh, I've always thought they were legitimate attempts. Yeah, I thought they were too. Because he I, doesn't I know thought if he they can fix the cabinet. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to do that. So he just mm-hmm. is throwing these out there so that he can succeed somehow. Yeah, there were a lot of people on the main site who kind of thought who took this comment as very enlightening that uh, perhaps Malfoy was had, had you know actually was doing this like as using those as a as a red herring for what he was really doing but I I wasn't inclined to think so based on kind of what we see of Malfoy later on in the series mm-hmm. um kind of when he reveals that he's super vulnerable about this whole thing um yeah yeah, I thought those were genuine. Yeah. I always thought they were genuine attempts. Bad attempts. Oh, genuine. yeah. There's there's a bit too much emotion invested in the entire mission for him mm-hmm. not to, like, be taking genuine stabs at this as the things are going on. Because well, not only is he worried for himself, he's worried for his mother. Like, Voldemort's right there. Mm-hmm. Well, and what what a red herring, right, if he had actually killed somebody who wasn't yeah. intent, who, the intended oh target, that would kind of be a problem. That would be terrible. Because <laughs> Katie Bell was pretty close to being Yeah, dead. she was. So And poor Ron. Yeah. And poor Ron. Poor Ron, who we've kind of painted as a jerk in these last few episodes. But oh, nonetheless, really? poor Ron. Well, I'll try and continue that trend for you. Yes. <laughs> Good. Well, Good. I, look I, to I agree, though. I, I think that they were legitimate attempts, and this may be more so me recalling the film, but uh, in Half-Blood Prince, when Draco and, and Dumbledore are on the tower, they, they have a conversation about all the different means that Draco went to to try and, and kill him. And I, I think uh, there was real sort of feeling behind the necklace and the mead. Um, maybe I'm misremembering a bit, but I, but I think there is uh, a discussion that takes place and, and Dumbledore thinks it to be um, pretty well planned out, but just unfortunately for Draco, it doesn't work out until the very end. Yeah. I know. It's surprisingly well planned out for a boy who really hasn't had to think too hard about planning anything up until this point. Like, I feel like Draco was a lot of a sort of fly by the seat of your pants kind of planning situation. And he mostly just depended on his father or his father's name to back him up. Well, and, and remember too, that there's kind of a, Malfoy reveals when in his discussion with Dumbledore at the end that he he was kind of actually taking pages out of Harry's yeah. book. Um so that's his inspiration. <laughs> so that's the that's that's why he suddenly became I guess such a good planner. No, he's um, not obsessed with Harry. At all. <laughs> nope. Nope, there's no fan fiction out today. there about that. <laughs> all right, well, uh, Tim Drake fan wrote in to say, I want to take a moment to defend the monster in Harry's chest that nobody seems to like. Um, Can't wait to see where this is going. (laughs) Now, I'm still young and have not been in love, but I know enough about humanity to understand that love creates a lot of feelings. Sometimes it's referred to as butterflies, but it's essentially similar. 
as a sidebar, J.K. Rowling is not the only one to refer to love-like feelings as a monster. In Star Wars Revenge of the Sith novel by Matthew Stover, Anakin is torn apart by his looming decision, save his wife and lose his whole world or stay the Jedi path. This indecision is compared to a monster in his stomach throughout the book. Harry is not, of course, looming between light and dark, but he is hovering between Ron's sister and I love her. Hmm. Butterflies and monsters are not the same thing. What butterflies are you talking about, Tim Drake fan? <laughs> you must be horrified of butterflies. The <laughs> I don't know. I I I get that sentiment. I guess because there were a lot of actually um, people discussing that perhaps on the main site that uh, the the monster isn't so much representative of love as it is lust. Which, which I definitely think and, is what it is. Yeah. In that context I could I could even see defending the monster metaphor a little more. Um and I guess, you know, my my personal continued struggle with the Harry Ginny relationship and Harry's feelings toward Ginny, um is that I, I it's it's so, you know, integral to Harry's actions at the end of Deathly Hallows, his kind of feelings for Ginny and they're you know, we never really see that kind of grad that proper graduation from lust to love like we get mostly lust and then it's like 19 years later <laughs> they were in love so they're married they're, they they're super married and they have so many children they're and super happy forever they gave them well. stupid names so but i guess that's why i have problems with it just because i guess I felt like, especially because, you know, as I've cited in other episodes, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but personally, I think that the, you know, the Hermione-Ron relationship, I think is really well done in the Mm -hmm. books. There's so much focus given to it, and it's built up really well, and it has a pretty good arc. Like, it it actually does kind of cross that lust to love Mm -hmm. arc, and Ginny and Harry are supposed to do that, I think, narratively, and I think we're supposed to have the sense that they did, but it never happens. Like, for me, it never happens. I feel like it it was supposed to happen in 20 minutes or so. (laughs) In this book? In this book. And I, I, the thing is, I love the idea of them being together. Like, I want to love Ginny a lot. Problem Mm -hmm. is, we don't have enough time to fall in love with his character. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's a shame because, like, she's got some of Fred and George's attitude and she plays Quidditch and she kicks butt and she defends people. But, like, that's all that you really see is sort of weird behind-the-scenes stuff and she's almost never in the scene itself. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly they're snogging. I just, I I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, too, I guess the thing that, and I mentioned this a few episodes before, too, but, you know, I'm rereading Order of the Phoenix with my brother and, um... We're uh, we just finished the part with Harry and Cho's disastrous date, <laughs> and even then I was reading it and I was like, "This is really well done." Like, you know, people may hate Cho, but she's well written and she's well developed as a love interest for Harry. Mm-hmm. Like it, it makes sense. Like it doesn't come out of nowhere. There's there's time spent on scenes with them together. There's a lot of dialogue between them. Um, it just and even that works better. I feel than. Harry Ginny to some degree, not not in the kind of end result, but in just how it's written. Mm-hmm. So, no, I agree with you there, and I don't hate Cho actually. I think that a lot of her actions are Thank very you. excusable. 
thank you very given much. the position that she's in yeah i'm glad to hear that yes she did her mm-hmm. boyfriend did die you guys <laughs> like... yeah <laughs> and she's in a really precarious situation especially with harry involved yeah, yeah. probably shouldn't have gotten involved <laughs> <laughs> All right, and uh, the last comment here from Slytherin Knight, who says, a whole lot. Uh, I just realized (laughs) something about the connections between this book and Order of the Phoenix. After Harry overhearing the conversation between Malfoy and Snape, this gives him evidence that Malfoy is up to something and is consorting with known Death Eaters. These clues confirm that Draco has, at the very least, joined the Death Eaters. And yet Hermione and Ron still don't believe that Malfoy has chosen the side and is actively trying to do something this year. The connection I'm trying to point out is how in order they were some of the few that believed him about Voldemort being back while the wider world doesn't believe him. But now Harry's two closest confidants don't believe him even though Harry now has more evidence on Malfoy than he did about Voldemort being back. All it was in Goblet of Fire was Harry's word about Voldemort being back But here you see Harry getting testimony from Malfoy that is added on by Snape's comments, and yet no one believes him. Didn't Dumbledore tell the students to tell the professors if they see anything suspicious going on in light of the dark times they are now facing? This refusal to believe Harry, a total 180 from previous books, is one of the major things that made me list Half-Blood Prince as my least favorite of the Harry Potter books. It seems that Hermione and Ron almost refuse to see the larger picture that Harry is seeing, they focus so much on each other's problems that they don't see what is right in front of them. Whoa. I think that's a great <laughs> observation. I love it. That is a uh, cool observation. You know, I, I'm I'm mixed on that because, like, I I can see the I have problems. I definitely have problems. I don't know about you guys, but I can, I definitely have problems with kind of how I think the book really stretches Hermione and Ron holding out. On their belief. No, I agree with that. With Harry. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, keeping in mind what happened at the end of the fifth book, I think that's, you know, it's never, it's interesting because I don't think it's ever brought up narratively that that's why Harry and Ron, Hermione and Ron are doubting Harry, but it seems to be like the reason why they would, right? Yeah. It's never directly brought up. But then it also made me think of maybe... Okay, um, we know that last year Voldemort was in Harry's head a whole lot more than we we thought, and he didn't even know at the time. Either of them did, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but Harry was a lot angrier and probably a lot more volatile, and mm-hmm. we saw that from just how he was acting in book five. And maybe it was that last year, yeah, they did say that they believed in him, but maybe they were doubting a whole lot more behind his back just because he was so scary to be around at that time. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, because, like, I I would be scared crapless of someone who's just screaming and mouthing off and then, like, having weird dreams and then vomiting. (laughs) That's, that's like, you're you're nuts. Just, (laughs) yeah, I would definitely back off from someone like that. Sorry, Harry. I love Harry, but seriously. (laughs) Well, and I'd say order implies that there's a little bit of that going on. Like, it's it's tough because the narration is through Harry's, like you said, Mm -hmm. Grace, his warped perception thanks to Voldemort, that he thinks everybody's talking about him. But I would be surprised if there weren't moments where Hermione and Ron just kind of agree, just because. Like, I mean, at the end of Order, Hermione's really, like, you can tell she doesn't want to go, but once Harry amasses enough evidence, she's like, okay, just because she doesn't want to get her head bitten off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, 
and which ends up of course being against her gut instincts and yeah in the situation because Hermione's always right (laughs) well and is it at really at this point with the, the way that the book is written and what's going on? Is it really? I don't think it's really that hard to believe that Ron and Hermione are more interested and wrapped up in themselves for once. Like, yeah. what they've spent five years pretty much following Harry to the ends of the earth. So it's like, is it really unreasonable to expect that for one year they might want to focus on their own problems? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's not. I think that's. I think that's what makes the Harry Potter series more realistic. Um, is that these characters kind of get fed up after a while with their with the things they've got to deal with. Yeah, I mean, look at Ron in book four, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great, like, earlier example of that. Because mm-hmm. Ron has no reason not to believe Harry in Goblet of Fire. Oh, yeah. So. Just being all pants-like. Yeah, and he doesn't really have a reason not to believe him. I know we'll talk about it with the upcoming chapter, but the fact that he mentions the unbreakable vow and and doesn't really know what it is and and they have to clarify it for him. It doesn't seem like something Harry would just pull out of thin air and and use as a reasoning as to you know, what Snape and Draco are up to. So I think that you know it's it's a little disconcerting to see that his closest friends deep down don't really believe him. Hermione, mm-hmm. I guess you can understand because she's a bit more practical and yeah. and she tends to side you know with the adults of of the series more often than not, or at least think like they do. So of course the reaction is going to be, well, there's no way that Snape is really working on behalf of the death eaters or in cahoots with Draco in any way. It's not to say that Ron and Hermione don't think Draco is up to something. I just don't think they believe he's up to something, the level of which Harry suspects. Mm-hmm. Well, well, and I, you know, that's the big thing about this, this information drop in the next chapter is, Ron's like, yeah, you you die, and then it's like not talked about anymore. Like <laughs> there are horrific consequences <laughs> to what what Harry's just told Ron, and Ron's like, eh, whatever. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's Christmas, who cares? <laughs> so it, I I I I've been kind of saying that before too. With what I what the thing that does shock me, I think, even though he does have so many of his own issues to deal with this year, is Ron and his lack of belief on this because Ron is the one in all the previous books who who provides the most outlandish conspiracy theories mm-hmm. so i'm used to him going along with what harry suggests i guess hermione's kind of rubbed off on ron a little bit good influence um because he's taking her side a lot this year when it comes to this big conspiracy and and both of them have definite hormone issues going on so yes <laughs> and hormones do affect good judgment oh yeah <laughs> All right, well, that wraps up all of the uh, recap comments we got on Chapter 15. Thanks so much to the listeners uh, for sending in your thoughts. And uh, we got a shout-out to Hufflepuff Scheme, too, because thank you for leaving us some host yeah, love. Yeah, that was so sweet. This, that, was, that was very nice. No, we, we don't get a lot of host love. Made my so day. thank you. That Thanks was for audio-booming it. <laughs> <laughs> audio-boom. Yes, Mike is now familiar with audio-boom. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And well, speaking of Hermione and Ron and Harry and Hermione and all sorts of different pairs, it's time for our (laughs) podcast question of the week responses. And our question, just to remind you, was, for all you Harmony shippers out there, what would have happened if Harry and Hermione had gone to Slughorn's party together? How would Ron have reacted? And would the events of the chapter and the party have gone any differently? 
So our first response response is from how am I going to translate this? Who says totally fine? Hermione would ha- would not have been groped by McGlagan, and Harry would have had someone by his side to witness the Snape Malfoy scene. Maybe then she would have taken his concerns more seriously. In my opinion, there were so many interesting people there, hanging out with Cormac was the worst option for Hermione. She really had to learn the hard way that trying to make people jealous doesn't pay off. I I don't know if it would have gone totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> would she have This is ignore Would she have believed Harry though about Malfoy? Oh, well, she, she was have? there probably. I don't know. Hermione's worked so hard to not believe this. Well, and you could see cause... that you could see that conversation going not she could say, oh, there's, he's not up to something. He's just, I don't know. Well, he's just trying to get information. Blah, blah, yeah. Blah, blah. <laughs> which is, yeah, which is exactly what we'll see from everybody yeah. else in the next chapter. So I wouldn't be surprised if Hermione leapt to that conclusion because just like, you know, most of the conversations that Harry eavesdrops on, there's just enough information left out that it's not definitive enough, definitive enough for him, for anybody to make a call. Um, so yeah, I could, I mean, even if, her, who knows if Hermione would have even gone with Harry, she might have been separated from him at that point and he still would have gone on his own. Or she might have refused to go with him to follow Snape and Malfoy. Or yeah. would they both still even fit under the cloak? Yeah, he'd probably be like, stay here. Because they're big well, kids now and they say, can't all do three that of them anymore. fit under it earlier in this book, so mostly Oh, did they really? Okay. It. Like, Okay, it's canon, we're fine, guys. <laughs> <laughs> But well, and this that 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 comet kind of completely ignores the Ron element, mm-hmm. so which yeah. I think is pretty important to this particular scenario. I mean, I'll be honest; it's not an unimaginable ship here. Like they no. they do work remarkably well together. I hate to sort of stick it to the um, Hermione and um, Ron shippers. Oh yeah, no, I found I found that more and more with this reread. Mm-hmm than any other that I think actually Harry and Hermione are fabulously compatible, but they don't. That may be why they don't work though. Like maybe they work too well together. Yeah. Is that, is that strange to think of? No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. She needs a little bit of like, um, well, I mean, Ron is clever, but he's kind of (laughs) stupid. He's witty and stupid. (laughs) He's just not intelligent, but he's witty. I don't know. He's he's smarter than he's, they make him out to be in the movies. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So you made it 30 minutes before bashing Ron. Just so. <laughs> I'm not bashing him. I promise you. Sometimes it's charming to be stupid, as in Ron's case. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, Ron and his reactions, our next comment comes from a free elf who says, even if Harry explained to him that they just want his friends, I don't think Ron would be able to forgive him. He would be too paranoid about it, and it would be like one of his worst fears coming true, confirming his worst insecurities. Harry and Ron would have fallen out over it, possibly for a long time if the argument was then Harry and Hermione against Ron, as that would lead to even more paranoia and hostility on Ron's part. I think this is another reason why Harry and Hermione didn't consider going with each other. Harry could have guessed how Ron would react, and he would never risk it. Even though they would be just be going as friends, he would see it as a betrayal because he would know that that's how Ron would see it. I don't think Hermione would want to risk dragging Harry into the argument, and to her it would be going too far. She would know that going with Harry would genuinely hurt Ron, whereas going with McLagan would be more of a slap in the face. 
Um, I think it, I think it goes by a lot of, I mean, like, that's kind of what we're asking for here, but it goes by a lot of, like, assumptions of things that are going to happen. Mm-hmm. But, like, this thing will lead to this thing, and this thing will happen here, and Voldemort will win at the end. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, like, you, could, what? could, could, if this had happened at this point in the series, like, could that have affected, you know, I, wouldn't that affect what happens in Deathly Hallows to a pretty... I think that it would have made it even cooler and more dramatic for when Ron finally does get over his craziness. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, I w- I'm just wondering if he even would have those. Like, if if Harry and Hermione were able to kind of, you know, settle Ron down, like, reason with him about this. Oh, yeah. Like, would he even have that insecurity in Deathly Hallows? Maybe. Well, I mean, he was wearing the locket, so the locket messes That's true. a lot with you. Well, I wonder what the locket would come up with instead of that. Like, because Ron still does have other insecurities, I suppose. Probably his brothers. Yeah. There's a lot of brother issues. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I feel like if they could get this sorted out. But I also don't know how this would affect, like, Harry, you know, wanting to date Ginny. Like, and Ron's reaction to that if Harry, you know. Would that get between Hermione and Ginny then? Maybe, I don't know. Oh my god. <laughs> That's true. They they are rather sharp, so Well, and Gin, and 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 Ginny's dating somebody right now anyway. So. And also Ginny is not one to jump to conclusions like that. No. Either. No. Neither is Hermione, but I feel like if we got to know Ginny, she might be even more so like less to do that cuz I feel like she's a lot like one of the guys. Mhm. She'd just be like, "Oh, okay." That's great. <laughs> Micah, who do you ship? Well, I, I was just going to say, though, that I always thought, and this is just my own take on it, that Harry ending up with Ginny was a way to officially bring him into the Weasley family because mm. of the longstanding relationship he had with Ron. And that that's just my personal take and, and why Rowling wrote it the way that she did. Um, so as far as who does I sh- who do I ship... Uh, well, I, I've I've probably talked about different pairings on this show in the past, and it's gotten me into a lot of trouble. So I think I'm going to stay away from that because <laughs> I've made some pretty inappropriate references, and, and you know, as as in, in a host capacity here, I'm going to try and keep it clean. Aw, no fun. Yeah. So wait, by, so by this sort of like idea. Um, Ginny is sort of just conveniently female. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say like. Harry should have just married Ron. <laughs> <laughs> <Could've>. I mean... <laughs> he does a lot for Ron. He, mm-hmm. he, gives, he gives Ron a lot of passes. They just should have gotten together. With that. But no, I, I, to some degree, Mike, I agree with that. Just definitely because, you know, Rowling is, because there's been the argument I've seen in many places that, you know, even pe- people who don't like the epilogue because, you know, Harry gets everything he wants and there's pretty much no battle scars in the epilogue. And Rowling has made clear that, well, you know, Harry, she she had a, you know, a, a path for Harry and that was the end goal for her that she had developed throughout the books was that he wanted a family. He had never had a full unit family and that's what he craved. So she gave him a huge one um, by putting him in with the Weasleys. So that, yeah, yeah I, agree. I, can, I can see that. And so. also all of his friends, too, because he sort of makes his own family. Even in year mm. one, he sort of, like, builds his own little family unit. And that's yeah. always what's really warming about the series. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. All right, and then to round off our podcast question of the week, we got a joke submission from Rose Lumos. So, guys, why did Harry take his Patronus to the party? Why did Harry take his Patronus to the party? Because he was going stag. Ah, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> it made me laugh. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for answering our podcast question of the week this week. Uh, we had a lot of good responses, so head on over to alohomara.mugglenet.com to check all of those out. Well, I guess with that, uh, we, we go in to the next chapter, chapter 16 of Half-Blood Prince. Chapter 16. A very frosty Christmas. Ugh, can you turn that awful music down? What, dear? I can't hear you over this lovely music. Ugh. We're back at the burrow for the holidays with Harry telling anyone who will listen about Snape and Malfoy's mysterious conversation. Remus Lupin seems to be the only person willing to lend Harry a sympathetic, if skeptical, ear, while also providing updates on the Order's activities and debunking a few theories about the Half-Blood Prince's identity. Following some disappointing gifts, including a sappy necklace from Lavender and a bag of maggots from Creature, Harry and the Weasleys receive an unexpected and unwelcome Christmas Day surprise when a rigid Percy and an inquisitive Rufus Scrimger show up under the pretense of a friendly visit. But Harry isn't fooled by Scrimger's tricks, refusing to become the Ministry's poster boy in the fight against Voldemort. Mm. So with all of that serious stuff in the summary, let's talk about Celestina Warbeck, because that's important. Because I don't think we've actually discussed her on the show in depth. Um, She performs regularly at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Yeah, have you guys heard her? No, oh, because I've not never... only have I heard, not only have I heard her, I've what have you done to her? No, I've, I've I've performed one of her songs. I've covered one of With her songs. Her? At, yes, no, I wish. I knew you I would. Yes. Oh I my wish. god, I love no, her so I, much. I covered one of her songs at the library for one of my children's programs to great delight um, from the kids. I sang a, uh, oh, which one was it? You stole my cauldron, but you can't have my heart. I, oh. I sang that one at the uh, library at our Halloween, uh, like, late night at the library party, um, which there is video of, listeners, in one of the previous episodes, if you care to hunt it down. Um, but a little background on Celestina. She was born on the 18th of August. Her wand is larch and phoenix feather and is ten and a half inches long and flexible, which is described, actually, in the song, um, You Stole My Cauldron, But You Can't Have My Heart. Uh, she's a Gryffindor. Her special abilities include the ability to drown out a chorus of banshees, <laughs> tap, tap dancing, and fancy baking. Um, she had a wizard father and a muggle mother. She's been married three times and has a son. And her hobbies include traveling in fabulous style, breeding, breeding rough-coated crups, and relaxing in any of her eight homes. Uh, just a short summary of Celestina. She is the internationally acclaimed singing cessation, sometimes known as the singing sorceress, and she hails from Wales. Her father, a minor functionary in the Muggle liaison office, met her Muggle mother, a failed actress, when the latter was attacked by a lethifold disguised as, dis as a stage curtain. 
Celestina's extraordinary voice was apparent from an early age. Disappointed to learn that there was no such thing as a wizarding stage school, Mrs. Warbeck reluctantly consented to her daughter's enrollment at Hogwarts, but subsequently bombarded the school with letters urging the creation of a choir, theater club, and dancing class to showcase her daughter's (laughs) talents. Frequently appearing with a chorus of backing banshees, Celestina's concerts are justly famous. Three devoted fans were involved in a nasty three-broom pile-up over Liverpool while trying to reach the last night of her flighty Aphrodite tour. (laughs) (laughs) And and her tickets often appear on the black market at vastly inflated prices, which is one reason why Molly Weasley has never yet seen her favorite singer live. Celestina has sometimes lent her name and talents to good causes, such as raising funds for St. Mungo's Hospital for magical maladies and injuries with a recording of Puddlemere United's anthem, Beat Back Those Bludgers, Boys, and Chuck That Quaffle. And I want to hear that. That's the next one I want. Someone someone (laughs) write that, because I want that. (laughs) It is is fully written, and it is performed at the park. Someone send me a video. I want it. (laughs) It's on YouTube. Dang it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can actually have everything yes. you want, Allison, when it comes you to win. Celestina Warbeck. I just need to get down there someday, that's all. <laughs> More controversially, Celestina was vocal in her disagreement with the Ministry of Magics uh, when, they, when they sought to impose restrictions on how the wizarding community was allowed to celebrate Halloween. Some of Celestina's best-known best songs include You Charmed the Heart Right Out of Me and A Cauldron Full of Hot Strong Love, which, of course, listeners are briefly mentioned in this chapter and again which were given full lyrics and are performed at the wizarding world her fans are usually older people who who love her grandstanding style and powerful voice the late 20th century album you stole my cauldron but you can't have my heart was a massive global hit celestina's personal life has provided much fodder for the gossip columns of the daily prophet an early marriage to a backing dancer lasted only a year Celestina then married her manager, with whom she had a son, only to leave him for the composer Irving Warble ten years later. And just briefly as well, J.K. Rowling says that Celestina is one of her favorite offstage characters. She was included a lot in a Daily Prophet series that Rowling wrote for her very short-lived fan club on Blooms- uh, that Bloomsbury had. Um, and uh, Rowling says that she modeled her after Shirley Bassey who, if you've ever heard of Goldfinger, then you know. Oh my god, really? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's awesome! (laughs) And actually, if you you look at how they styled Celestina in the park, she is... She does look a lot like Shirley Bassey. So, but yes, Celestina kind of exploded into the into the expanded canon of Harry Potter once the books were over. She gets her shining moment here, though, where we do hear a few of her songs in this chapter. And uh, I have to say, if Fleur doesn't like these songs, she has bad taste. Because <laughs> these songs are excellent, if you've heard them. They're, like, they're really catchy. They're they really, really good songs. This might have to get cut out, but uh, yeah, she can suck it. Those yeah. are awesome songs. <laughs> oh, that doesn't need to be cut out. We actually had a whole episode called Suck It Naysayers. <laughs> no way, really? <laughs> oh, cool. That's acceptable. That oh. is acceptable. Yeah, no, she can, she can just go and, and be French somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> but amongst all of this Celestina Warbeck warbling, um, there's Harry is trying to pretty much get to anybody who might believe him. And as we discussed earlier, Ron has pretty much denied him that he ron says he believes him but is kind of backing off on the topic uh mr weasley uh pretty much doubts him completely so harry turns 
to somebody who I don't know about you guys, but I've been missing for a very, very <laughs> long time. <laughs> Look who's sitting over by the this fireplace. This is the perfect chapter it, for you. why why do you Mm -hmm. think i requested it (laughs) remus lupin is sitting by the fireplace being super sad and emo (laughs) and he can (laughs) and he catches that harry's talking about all of this to mr weasley and he kind of wants to hop into the conversation um so there's a lot of things that lupin kind of brings up in his discussion which is why lupin is awesome this is where we're going to shower some lupin love here because he definitely gets a big he a lot of big moments so First of all, just kind of a little bit of some sad bits here. Lupin refers to the werewolves who he is working with as his equals. Oh, it hurts me. That made uh, me sad. I, <laughs> but issues just, with that. This just speaks so much to how self-deprecating Lupin is. Is that he? Oh, he can't see how much better he is than them, and it makes me mm-hmm. sad. Yeah, Grace. What were you gonna say? Since you have issues. Oh, well, I mean, he refers to them as equals, but really, like, they he's come from such a background where he's so filled with love, and they're filled with a lot of despair. And mm-hmm. I, it's, I'm not saying that they're, they're not equals and that they are all, in a sense, human, but mm-hmm. they're all being transformed into something that's much less human because they're following someone who's not so nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I'll get to that later. I don't want to cut off, like, all the other really awesome points you've got. Well, and, you know, kind of... Bleeding into that, Lupin reveals that he's been doing a lot of work for the Order. We've mm-hmm. kind of touched on this before, and it's really... Pottermore even provided us with a full background on Lupin, and it still didn't really answer what is going on in this chunk of Lupin's life. Um, the big question f- for for me here, are how did Lupin convince the other werewolves to trust him? And is Lupin actually transforming into a werewolf with them? And, like spending full moons with them like what does this work entail uh like i definitely think he has to be transforming with them um whether he's doing the things they're doing when they're werewolves if they can even interfere with each other i don't even know if they can like interact with each other's werewolves yeah i don't know if he is to be honest with you well because they're they're killing people yeah they're going out and (laughs) murdering and or like converting people yeah, yeah, and that, that like, that's kind of what Lupin implies is, like, is the way to gain their trust, is to kind of subscribe to their ideals. The family that slays together! <laughs> <laughs> and that's very much what, like, what I'm kind of, like I said, I'm just kind of shocked that Lupin even is managing to get in with their crowd well, at all. do they know who he is? Like, I feel like if he used a, if he used a fake name, I feel like they hid it well enough. That, well, maybe not, I guess, because Snape told everyone. Um, but if these, if these, if these werewolves have really separated themselves so much from society, maybe they haven't heard of him. And so maybe if he comes to them with, like, a fake name, and he's just like, yo, I'm a werewolf, and they're like, okay, come join us, then that's all he really needs. I, I guess then you have to go under the assumption that once... Greyback bit Lupin, there is no connection between the two of them after that, until up to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. Which Pottermore seems yeah. to suggest there's not. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It just seems weird, because Greyback knows who the Lupin family is, 
So, because yeah. he targeted their family specifically. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's just a little confused. That just seems like a little bit of a hole. In And again, like, did they just, like, what do they do when they hang out as werewolves? <laughs> did they just, like, hang out in caves and eat red meat? Like, what, oh, what are gross. they doing? <laughs> Discussing all the children they've attacked. Yeah, like, what is this? I, I just don't get... I feel like they'd be very primeval and very, I don't know, just all the time. That's that's kind mm-hmm. of the the um what's the word I'm thinking of? Um that's kind of the like gist I've gone from things is that they're very carnal all the time mm-hmm. because That's exactly they what I was gonna say. Put themselves yeah. into this kind of position. Well and like the the issue you mentioned before too, uh Allison and Grace, the 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 issue of like can they actually like when they're when they are werewolves can they, do they, like, retain enough of their mind to communicate? Can they communicate? Well, they listen because... to the call of their own kind, so maybe they can communicate somehow. I'm pretty sure that's a movie canon. Oh, really? <laughs> I think so. Is it? Oh, I thought it was in the I book. Don't... Maybe I'm not thinking right. They don't I thought that was too much on uh, werewolves, like, communicating in the books themselves. It's just like, there's a werewolf, let's run away from it. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, because I think the communication thing is set up just so that Hermione can do that. Oh, okay, I thought that was part of the bit. book. You it gotta have be. a hippogriff nearby to see your butt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It's yeah, a very specific know. set of instructions. Fantastic <laughs> Beast? Is it in Fantastic Beast? I don't know. Well, there's not that much. I, I think werewolves are mentioned in Fantastic Beast, but there's not that much. There's not that much given about them. Um, but As, as far oh, as these other werewolves, though. <laughs> I wonder, is it really any different than how Voldemort goes about recruiting his Death Eaters and and in the sense of, I know not all of them consciously made decisions to join that cause, but a lot of them probably did, influenced by other people. So is it really any different than what Lupin is doing here? You know, sort of the human slash wizard side of it, they have the choice Mm -hmm. uh, to some extent. Obviously, there's, there's a force behind a lot of what Voldemort does in in terms of influencing people but let's just say for the for the sake of this you know conversation that they have the choice you know they can go along with the death eaters and Voldemort or they can choose to remain neutral or they can side with the order and and Dumbledore I don't think the werewolves are are any different I think there are some that would choose to side with Voldemort and then there are some that would choose to side with Lupin uh, and the Order, and it's just about who can do the best convincing. Just like when Hagrid went off to try to parlay with the Giants, you know, I, I see it as being yeah. somewhat of a conscious decision. You know why that I get because that's that's what you described, Micah, is kind of exactly like what I would have wanted to see happen because I think that's my I have the same I guess disappointment here that I did with Hagrid and the Giants because Hagrid doesn't get any of the Giants to side with them. Yeah. Like the only one they get is Grop. And well, he is useful. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say he's useful in the final battle, but he's the only one they've got on their side out of all the Giants in the world and then kind of the same thing happens with the werewolves is Lupin is the only werewolf yeah. on their side in the end. Yeah. Um, I mean, wouldn't it have been awesome if there had been some, like, a, if, if the good guys had had, like, a little contingent of werewolves, too? Oh, oh, yeah. let's rewrite the seventh book, you guys. <laughs> I already have ideas. This is fabulous. True. I mean, looking at it seriously, though, 
what really can the side, let's call it the side of light for lack of a better word, what mm-hmm. can they really offer them? Because the, the ministry has pretty much chopped them out of everything and, and they've pretty much made them into monsters. And this is both for the giants and for the werewolves. So anything that Voldemort promises, in a sense, has to be better than what they've gotten thus far. And if even if it happens to be on the side of Fenrir and that like they get more victims, at least they have a sense of respect through fear rather than having no respect whatsoever and being subjugated to being like beasts and foolish and like sort of just shoved off to the side as something terrible. But that could be what they're... um, Sorry, keep going. Yeah, no, it's fine. And it's just, I also thought it was really interesting, the comparison between Voldemort and Fenrir, and that Voldemort is, the way that he recruits is almost entirely mental. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's insane, but like more so it's it's mental, whereas um, Fenrir, the way that he would recruit in a sense would be much more of a physical way, like he physically forces these people to, to follow him. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, because of that, Voldemort might even just be used... Well, yes, he's using Fenrir, but he just doesn't take that man seriously just because he doesn't take it that next mental level. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think what they could be offering them then, what Lupin could be offering them is saying, like, come act more human and people will see you as humans again and they'll give you better treatment. I, I don't know. That could be them. Yeah. I think Grace is right, though, that because I, I think that... Allison, you're right that that's probably the best Lupin has to offer. Uh-huh. But I think Grace is right in in terms of thinking about like the werewolves are probably thinking about immediate satisfaction, which mm-hmm. I think is what pretty much everybody who sides with Voldemort is thinking. Because um, though Voldemort is Voldemort doesn't have long term plans. He's just like, I'll give you what you want, and yeah. he's not. And in the end, he's not even really going to give them what they want. Of course, he's not because he's crazy. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. he he might essentially because keeping them loyal gives him more power. So he might, for certain periods of time, keep giving them what they want. And if it keeps being, um, if it keeps giving him exactly what he wants, he'll keep doing it. I also well, and I, I guess I'm thinking in terms too of just Voldemort. Like I think that's true, but mm-hmm. I think Voldemort's also happy to dispose of people who he finds useless. Oh so, yeah, definitely. Like, oh, yeah. There's the, like you have <laughs> oh, that added yeah. risk that sure you may get everything you want, but if you're not useful to Voldemort anymore, he'll just kill you. So <laughs> it's kind of an extreme trade-off. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess bad guys don't think that way. Mm. But, and Lupin uh, doesn't really have a, a a leg to stand on, so to speak. No, because <laughs> yeah. he can try and make his case, but it's just going to get thrown back in his face That's because mm-hmm. he lost his post at Hogwarts. He tried to integrate better into society, and look how it all turned out. Uh, yeah, so, right. so the ministry, as was mentioned before, and, and just really the wizarding community as a whole has done a poor job of trying to, you know, really have a equal society in the sense mm-hmm. of werewolves and, and really others. And, and we see that come back to favor Voldemort and, and his side of the cause and those, you know, all, all these different creatures for lack of a better term you know end up supporting him instead of um you know the order the other things that lupin kind of talks about he does briefly he does talk to harry about snape and what i do appreciate about this conversation is that while lupin still doubts harry like everybody else i think lupin has the best reasoned argument out of everybody about why he Mm -hmm. does um and he gives harry a very fair kind of reasoning for why he doesn't agree with him and he even you know you know, concedes that 
Uh, you're going to believe what you believe, and you should feel free to, and even approach Dumbledore about it. He said you could approach him, so do it. Um, but I do like that Lupin's pretty much the only one who's even kind of remotely entertaining Harry on this. Yeah. Um, it's nice, because nobody else is doing it. It's a very Lupin thing to do. As mentioned before, Lupin also does reveal, this is the, uh, we have a lot more information on this now, thanks to Pottermore. Um, but Lupin, this was the first reveal of his past, and that uh, Fenrir Greyback was the werewolf who bit him. Uh, listeners, not only can you find um, m- much more information on that on Pottermore, but we also did an episode completely focused on Lupin's backstory that was revealed. So make sure to check that out if you're looking for more Lupin love um, in addition to this episode. Um, but it's a it's a great point to kind of go back and re-examine that information, because it really does a lot to fill out this um, portion of the story. Uh, because the other thing that is definitely touched upon a lot is Lupin and Tonks. Who have the cutest um, love story. I'm just going to throw that out there. I have, love it. Who have a, a fabulous extra canonical love story that doesn't take place in the books. No, but it's beautiful. Well, I was going to ask kind of what everybody's feelings are. Like maybe were before and are now on Lupin and Tonks. Because of course what happens in this chapter is that uh, Fleur very rudely brings up Tonks in a derogatory way and Harry mistakes Mrs. Weasley's angry stare at Lupin um, as her anger towards Fleur um, and kind of misdirected anger but of course what's really happening is that Mrs. Weasley invited uh, Tonks and she didn't go and Lupin and Tonks are not at Christmas together um, her matchmaking is not working out <laughs> So, <laughs> but what were what were your guys' feelings on kind of Lupin and Tonks then and perhaps now as things as the storyline has evolved through Pottermore? Um I I love the idea of them together. Um I do think that they're really uber adorable, which is which is great to see that they actually do end up getting together. Mm-hmm. Um I I really lack a really strong opinion on them because I think everything works out the way that I wanted it to <laughs> aside from you know the very end the end, but, yeah. <laughs> the end. <laughs> I think I mean I liked them before but then the new Pottermore information just having that whole backstory just was really sealed that one for me and I mean I think I've told the story before that one one of the points where I almost didn't finish the last book was when Remus and Tonks die. <laughs> like, I put mm-hmm. the book down and I was like, she just killed them. I cannot finish this. She will kill everyone I love. Um, yep. So I, I, I chucked my okay. book across the She killed the room. my favorite character too. Yeah. Which one was yours? <laughs> you guys know my oh, favorite Voldemort. character. <laughs> well, he kind of had to die. Sorry. Yeah, that. just a little bit. <laughs> I guess I I ask because I kind of like how Micah had mentioned before that Ginny and Harry were kind of convenient. I always kind of felt initially that Lupin and Tonks were convenient. And until Pottermore kind of fleshed it out more, that's when I was like, oh yeah, okay, I can buy this. Grace, you had a few points too about Lupin that I oh, thought yeah, were yeah, yeah, touching yeah. on. Okay, um, I feel like... Lupin, I, I'm a I'm a sucker for symbolism and positioning and everything that that's really careful about writing. Lupin is positioned right before the fire, and he's also described as being looking even more ragged than usual. Mm-hmm. Um, he's I I feel like his character, if anything, right now more than ever is starved for human attention. Oh yeah, because not only like he jumps into that conversation. 
he jumps on that like like a hobo on a ham sandwich. Like, he just really <laughs> wants to talk to people mm-hmm. for the first time in forever. And he's also justifying his entire mission by um, the fact that Dumbledore told him to. And all of all of his beliefs in Snape just blind blind loyalty towards Dumbledore. And it's strange that Harry should question him now at the beginning of the chapter and then take his stance by the end. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe it's him unconsciously following somewhat of a father figure here. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like that's something definitely to note about the relationship between Harry and Lupin. And I wish we probably would have seen more interaction between the two of them. But No, I, I agree, because I think this interaction is, pre- you know, as wonderful as the whole Harry Potter series is written. And of course, I am biased as a, as as Lupin is my favorite character. Mm-hmm. But this is like some of mine, uh, too. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh hey, well how about that? But 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 I I don't know about you guys, but like when I read Lupin's passages, like it it they feel I don't know where's the is there a word for it? It's 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 magical. Like clearly not. There's no words. He's there the no other figure that Harry needed. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he's, he's he's willing to listen, but he's also willing to discuss. You know, yes. whereas yeah. Dumbledore will listen but not talk to you about anything and like yes yeah. he's he's always and serious will not listen but talk to you about everything yeah. <laughs> yes no that that's perfect that's exactly mm-hmm. it is that all these other characters aren't discussing with harry they're looking for ways to shut him down yeah mm. oh and my my point with the positioning by the fire is that he's trying to warm himself and that like he just needs to warm himself with human contact <laughs> mm-hmm Oh, well, that's so sad. It, it really is. It is. And I love this character, and it sort of saddens me to see him in this position. Oh, yeah. No, I I, I always, and I guess that's the other reason I, I love it when Lupin does show up, is because it's, I, I really, this reread more than any, but I always felt this way, is that um, Lupin is such a great character. To be out of the series for such long periods of time is, I think, really hard to see him not make major appearances. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So. I thought it was a great point that was that was just brought up about the contrast between this scene and then what happens at the end of the chapter with uh, Scrimgeour uh, mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of the loyalty factor because Harry is willing to criticize Lupin here uh, on the Dumbledore front, but then you know when he's talking with the minister, uh, it's him who ends up taking that position. So yeah. um, I really like that point. And then just about Lupin as a character, I mean, Prince... Prisoner of Azkaban is my favorite book, and I think me too. Yep, me too. that in large part is because of Lupin. Mm-hmm. And you, you all touched on the fact that he is really the only tie to Harry's past that's willing to talk about it with him. Uh, you know, Sirius obviously uh, doesn't last too long mm-hmm. uh, to be able to do that, but I, but I really see Lupin sort of becoming that fatherly figure to him, more so in that book. Uh, you know, and he's really the catalyst for Harry learning everything about defense against the dark arts, about learning what inevitably is going to help him defeat Voldemort. And oh, so yeah. that that really, mm-hmm. to me, was what made him stand out as being one of the best characters in the entire series. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, fun, fun fact for all of you listeners out there. I think I've said this fact before, but um, even Daniel Radcliffe knew that because in the for for Order of the Phoenix, he um, actually helped um, kind of with the costume design for Harry during the DA lessons. He wanted a sweater vest like Lupin wears. 
that that sweater vest he's wearing is based on on Lupin's costumes. Yeah. So and he requested that. So yeah, even even Daniel Mm -hmm. Radcliffe knows who the best character is. And (laughs) and one more point in the comparison between Fenrir and Lupin, Mm -hmm. um, they are literally polar opposites in the fact that Lupin mentions that uh, Fenrir specializes in turning children, and then it, it sounds like a sort of disgusting thing to do. But then you think about it. They're turning children in two of the exact opposite ways in that Fenrir is, like, attacking and either murdering or turning them into werewolves as well. And he's using force, fear, and revenge. And then you get someone like Lupin, whose speciality is pretty much raising children in in hopes that they'll be, like, better people with love and kindness. Mm -hmm. So, like, they're both dealing with children just in completely different ways. Yeah, I think we get that a lot in the Harry Potter series with, like, I think... With lots of different characters. We've talked about this a lot with Harry and Voldemort, but especially with these revelations through the memories about Mm -hmm. how kind of Harry and Voldemort had a very similar um, upbringing, but they both chose the completely opposite paths and moralities. Um, And I guess this is another example of that then. You could say the same of Arthur and Lucius. Yes, oh, yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. That one did not occur to me. Listeners, please, if you if you think of any more uh, extreme opposites, extreme paths in character development, do let us know in your comments this week. Um, and Lupin not only reveals a lot about himself and about werewolves in the Harry Potter world, he actually does a lot of world building in this um, short time he has with Harry. First of all, he rules out um, quite a few candidates for Half-Blood Prince. Very disappointingly, it is not James, Sirius, or Lupin himself. Very tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, Lupin is very blindsided by the Half-Blood Prince term. He has no idea what it means. Um, he also reveals that interesting... This is a very interesting twist, I thought, in the Half-Blood Prince development. Wiz- wizarding royalty doesn't exist. So now from this point, we know that the prince is not perhaps a prince he's not for real for real he's not legit a prince that part is so So, interesting to me though because she said on pottermore somewhere that wizards very much mixed with muggles and like the like i cannot think of where to say nobles that's the word i'm looking for Um, like they very much mix with i find it so fascinating that like does she mean just like in the wizarding world themselves there's no princes or is she saying that like they haven't, because, oh, I don't know. I'm now thinking of well, fan fiction where some wizard decides to infiltrate the nobles and go to, uh, well, and become royalty. Maybe I've been reading too much Wolf Become Ball. king, yeah. But, um, no, 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 no. I was going to say, though, in, in the past, there is canon in the past that there were wizarding individuals, including the, Luci- the, the Malfoy family, who kind of infiltrated mm-hmm. royalty and got what they wanted out of it. And it's interesting to me that especially the i guess the british wizarding system you know they the the i am assuming that there's elements of the ministry that are modeled after the a muggle ministry um and so but there's there was no royalty that there was no monarchy that developed out of it um there was no royal line that i guess survived or that like pure bloods didn't kind of take that to become like royalty um after a time mm-hmm. so there's there's no royalty. Uh, Lupin also reveals that spells kind of go in and out like fads, um, including Levicorpus, which which we know was in, now was invented by Snape. But how did that become popular if it's nonverbal? Like 
did Snape do it one day? And one of his, like, dorm mates was like, oh, what was that? And he was like, you say eleven corpus in your head. And it just, like, spread from there. That's what I, I find interesting about that is, like, how does something become popular if you don't know what someone's saying? Well, he must have, I mean, I'm assuming the first people, if he would have spread it to anybody, would have been his fellow budding Death Eaters, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, I guess it's not too out of the realm of possibilities to think that maybe one of them told somebody from another house and it just kind of bled out from there, right? Um, or other Slytherins who were using it and kind of one of them gave it away. Because um, the, the spell works verbally. Like you, you could say Levicorpus and it would work, right? Does it in the book? I yeah. I mean, what's, what's stopping people from using Wingardium Leviosa? From on a person, I don't know. Is there a yeah, like this is this is my big confusion. Levicorpus does sound really cool. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's like you're lifting a corpse, <laughs> but um, it, it's exactly the same thing as Wingardium Leviosa. Yeah, there's a lot of spells in the book that have very similar, if not the same, functions. Um, Wizards maybe, just like to be redundant. <laughs> maybe you can't apply Wingardium. Can. Well, well, it could be the way can, you're lifted, right? Because Levicorpus like lifts you up by the ankle, by the whereas ankle. I feel like Wingardium Leviosa would just make you start floating. Can you even use Wingardium Leviosa on people? I don't know. That's true. Could I have a weight restriction? Why not? Because Harry tries to use Axio on Hagrid, and that doesn't work. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, there might be want that to work. Let's be honest. <laughs> there might be multiple reasons for that, <laughs> um, but. Uh, now, Lupin also puts Harry on the track of checking when the Half-Blood Prince's book was published, his copy of Advanced Potion Making, which Harry finds out was around 50 years ago, which is circa 1946, which supposedly rules out individuals who were in the Marauders era. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but of course, we find out that that is not the case, and that actually throws us off track of who it could mm-hmm. be. Um, Interesting connection. Is to... anyone else thinking Tom Riddle? Yes, because I was going to say, interesting connection to Chamber of Secrets, because the diary is also said to be published 50 years ago. So I I remember the first time I read it, I was like, wait, book, 50 years ago. Ah." Well, yeah, isn't it surprising that Harry doesn't think that it's Voldemort? Like, he he doesn't ever in canon think it's Voldemort, does he? Yeah, it's like, this book thing has happened before, dear. (laughs) Wait. Well, yeah, yeah, and if, if if you go with, if you go with ring theory... Like that, that that like Harry should acknowledge it, Cause, mm-hmm. yeah, because yeah, Chamber and Half Blood. I mean, notwithstanding the fact that Rowling has said that she took elements out of Chamber and put them in Half Blood, um, it's funny to think that Harry wouldn't make that connection. Um, and it's that... Ginny, right? Well, at least in the movie, right? She brings that fact up to him. No, she, does she does in the, the book, book too. Yeah. She 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 I think in the book it's actually she takes the book from him in the movie and teases him. But yeah, I think it's in the book that she says the whole Well, it's in book 5 that she brings up about being possessed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't remember if they actually acknowledge that it could have been Voldemort, which surprised me because it just seems like such an obvious suggestion. Yeah, it seems like they kind of hand it to you. Well, I maybe maybe it's because I guess if Harry thought it was Voldemort, he would probably immediately stop using the book. Well, it, it kind of yeah. sets it up as a red herring, too, to have that conclusion. That's true. I wonder if that was even maybe the intended conclusion at one point when she had all this stuff in Chamber of Secrets. Because originally oh. Chamber of Secrets oh, was yeah. titled Half-Blood Prince. So maybe... Because the thing is, I, I had thought about that because, you know, if she had titled 
Her original intention was to title Chamber of Secrets Half-Blood Prince, and if the revelation was that Snape was the Half-Blood Prince in book two, like, that would that completely throw lame. off the whole... That would Well, it would throw off the whole thing. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't... Like, the rest of the series just wouldn't work. So maybe Voldemort was supposed to be the Half-Blood Prince but at some point. Interesting that the way it worked out, this now suggests that Snape's mother went to Hogwarts with Voldemort. Oh, yeah. Is it, wow. Yeah, so, that's right. I don't know. Did they, they probably knew each other. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, because they were both. Well, I think it's it's assumed that Eileen yeah. was in Slytherin. So mm-hmm. now there's going to be yeah, a fan fiction they... about that. <laughs> oh, that you said it. Now it's there. <laughs> and, I'm sure and it already and Voldemort it... wasn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> and Grace, you had a you had another you had some more symbolism for us. Oh, about the about the gifts. Yeah, Harry and Ron's the, okay. Christmas presents. Yeah, it's just me and my symbolism again. Um, I like looking up stuff like this because it's really interesting. I don't know if she necessarily, like J.K. Rowling, if she necessarily meant to plant this in here. Oh, she probably um, did. It's it's possible. I mean, Harry, like, it's a very striking imagery and just like, Harry gets a bag of maggots for Christmas. (laughs) And that's sort of horrifying in one sense. But in in more than one sense, if you're thinking of who it's coming from, Mm -hmm. um, maggots as a gift um, from Creature... Maggots, maggots are a symbolism of something eating away at you, from from what I saw when I looked this up, because hmm. I thought that it was interesting that it, he could have given him anything. He could have given him like a pile of crap, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but he gave him maggots in particular, and maggots are something that feeds off of like your worst fears, and and it shows that either something's eating away at you, or you're hiding something, or running away from something, and it's something that you can't necessarily stop unless you destroy this thing. And what Creature currently is hiding from everyone is the fact that Regulus was slaughtered in order for him to live. Mm-hmm. And he can't tell anyone about this. And this has just been stewing and eating away at him for literally years now. Mm-hmm. So I thought that that was an interesting choice of gift and that like he will be telling Harry later. So essentially he's destroying the maggots in the seventh book. Um, and the necklace for Ron... Uh, is interesting because like necklaces are supposed to be symbols of love and um, devotion, but in this sense, then the fact that it's hung around his neck, it's almost like a collar for a pet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty, especially from lavender. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think, yeah. and it, I think the um, the as far as Harry and Ron kind of receiving their presence it's always difficult for i think the part that's most difficult for me to read is when ron is like so is hermione really going out with mcclagan and harry's like yeah. oh i don't think so i think that went really badly and ron's like hmm, good <laughs> i'm like you have no place to talk sir like, meanwhile you're sitting there with your collar with your I collar mean, <laughs> with your, my sweetheart collar tightened around your neck <laughs> Yeah, no, no. That's a that's an excellent interpretation of the maggots, though. I really like that. Oh, thank you. I I could totally see that being. I mean, with some of the stuff that Rowling's revealed on Pottermore about how in depth she considered pretty much everything, she rarely She's does gray. things just because. You know. Yeah. I I totally think that would 
I, I'm sure if you asked her now, because of course she's listening to the show. So even if that wasn't <laughs> what she was thinking, she's going to tell people that from now on. Like, mm-hmm. oh yes, yes, the maggots were the, the eating way. I hope she died. <laughs> that would be great. Well, if I sure. ever met her, I would either just like burst into tears or pass out. So. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to ask her because I'm sure she she's dying to be on the last episode. Oh, uh, she's, oh my she's just waiting her turn in line. I'll uh, see what I can do about that for you. <laughs> Make on that Twitter? happen, Mike. Ask we go Twitter. way back yeah on twitter that's uh, right because mike is following her on twitter i now. do i follow her um, <laughs> she doesn't follow me but that's okay we'll work that out at a later point but on the topic of symbolism though uh and, and maybe it's even a bit of foreshadowing I, I know uh we touched on it a little bit earlier the the scene between uh harry and ron when they're when they're talking about what drake goes up to the unbreakable vow uh but there's a moment where Fred and George come in and they have this whole discussion and Ron gets pissed off because the twins won't help them finish their chores so they can get done early. And Ron throws a knife and it's thrown towards Fred. And I oh thought that God, was a little bit of a hint mm-hmm. from Rowling that perhaps Fred is going to die in Deathly Hallows. <gasps> oh, and by the way, Fred was the first one to start getting all all uppity when they mention Percy. Oh my oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah, and so when Percy's the one that returns, who goes out? Yeah. Ah. You know, I would I would believe that because I know Rowling has said too that there's some deaths that happened in, in some of the books, including Hallows, that she didn't like always intend or that happened later in her writing process. Like Lupin and Tonks weren't supposed to die. Um <laughs> And they they ended up replacing Arthur. She was just feeling murderous that day. I guess so. So so I don't know. You know, it's, I I but I could see Fred's death already having been planned by this point because it is so integral. Oh my gosh! So, I can never not you, see it. Yeah, now. when you think about when you think of it in, in in relation to this scene, that makes sense. Especially like you said, um, Grace with with Percy. Um, mm-hmm. up. And speaking of Percy, Scrimgeour hey. and Percy come waltzing in to the borough and everybody knows exactly what they're up to anyway. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> because they suck. Yeah. Um, and even and, though actually Rufus is very cordial. Yeah. Oh, but, but he's it, so it's like, like oily. I, I, maybe yeah. this is just me. It's too much. It's too much. I love the part where he, he points at Harry and he's like, that lad is finished with his meal. Clearly, I have no idea who he is. <laughs> I, lo- I, love how the, I love how the narrator says, this makes no sense because Ginny, George, and Flair are also done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so true. Well, and, and uh, Grace, it looks like you had a few things to say about Percy. What I generally, my general thoughts on Percy are that he's, he's very much hated among the family because of this whole departure that he has. Mm-hmm. And I think Ron goes for the same sort of like he he has the same sort of hatred that attacks him later on because he does depart from the group actually to rejoin his family which he never really does. But uh, regardless, <laughs> yeah, I mean their connections are uncanny. Um, he grew up. I I feel like he was trying to help raise his brothers, and it was almost in reaction to the fact that the twins were so out of control that he loves this sort of order, and he's constantly berated by his fam by more so by the twins um mm. than anyone else and everyone else just sort of has an eye-rolling reaction but he's constantly berated for being himself and enjoying that order that he likes to sort of impose in the later chapters or in the later books um but i feel like within the ministry 
he he finds a purpose and it's because he idolizes his father that he starts to idolize the ministry in general because uh, this this man that he sees as someone who he can grow up in order to be who works for the ministry um it it's sort of cut down once he actually gets there and learns how dishonored he his father is and when when arthur just refuses to try to even change that fact i could see him becoming more and more disillusioned with this Mm-hmm. So when someone does finally offer him power, even if it is to control him, he sees it as himself rising through the ranks and being discovered. And um, that, and it was earlier on, I forget which book it was, but he was reading something that, um, it was like Prefix Who Gained Power yeah. or something yeah. of that nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's in Chamber of Secrets. Very Tom Riddle-esque. I was expecting him to become a Death Eater by the end of the series. Mm. I'm going to be entirely honest. And like I, I, I love this character in that I'm, I'm very torn in between. Like I, he's very loyal to his family, and he sees through his mistakes before the end, and perhaps a little bit too late, but he still manages to get back to them. And he doesn't die, which is very strange for my favorite characters. <laughs> but um, I feel like really his intentions were good. He he was just very very misled and he was very lied to and he was pompous about it. He he goes through that sort of downfall of uh, hubris mm-hmm. because he mm-hmm. thinks he's so sure he yeah. has this right path and he wants everyone to follow this right path because the ministry says it's right, everyone else says it right, and everyone's confirming that this power that has discovered him is the right kind of power, except for his family, which he should have trusted because they have his best interests in mind. Okay. Yeah, I think when you... Oh, go oh, ahead, I was Allison. just going to say, I'm so glad you're defending Percy because I I love him as a character as well. And I, I, yeah! think, his, I think his redemption story... <laughs> yes, high five. I think his redemption story, it's, it's probably one of my favorite subplots throughout the whole it's thing. It's beautiful. Because, and I, I, I don't know, like, I just... I see where he's coming from, you know? Like, he... He wants better for himself. He wants better for his family. And so he goes out mm-hmm. there and he tries to find his dream, which is to work in the government and to do these things that he's trying to do. And he just keeps getting knocked down and knocked down. And um, and he, I agree that he's, he's very misled. But then when he does come back, and I actually think at this point he knows he's wrong, and he mm-hmm. would like to come back, but he doesn't know how to get himself back, especially at this yeah, point. Yeah, and he's really intimidated. Yeah. And also, see it like I see him as being a supremely intelligent oh, individual. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, but yeah. being extremely stupid <laughs> because of that. <laughs> yeah. I. You no, know, I, I think I actually like this defense of Percy, too, because I also like Percy as a character. I think he has some of the, the actually, some of the funniest lines in his appearances when he does speak. Yeah, because um, he's he just says such ridiculous things. <laughs> um, but I think you know the I I don't know if I'd say Percy's re- ready to come back yet. Like I think he's I think if he is, it's not so much that he doesn't know how, is that he's really stubbornly prideful at this point, and that's a lot to admit. Like there's yeah, he's a, being stupid. Yeah, he's being stupid <laughs> well, he gets at this attacked point. By the I think. twins when he does come home for this reason. Yeah, like, that is very true. I mean, I but I, I do just I. Being, not like scared, but you know, just like hesitant mm-hmm. of what his reception mm-hmm. would be if yeah. he did come back. But I, and I'm going to be a really hated figure for saying this, but I prefer. Okay, I, I prefer the twins' humor, but as characters, I prefer Percy over the twins because I feel like the twins are very. 
um, they're grating and they, they can be really almost, they, they cut you down a bit too much. They cross that line that you really didn't need. And Ron just gets bullied all the time by these guys. I feel so bad hearing this crap that they're telling him almost like 24-7 when he tries at something. It's like, no wonder he's, he's so scared to try new things. No, I think I think it was funny that you say that, Grace, because I was going to say something similar, which was that I think the reason that Percy gets so much bile and hatred from the fandom is because Fred basically dies in his place. Like a lot of people yeah. want Percy to die instead. And Fred Fred's the one who dies. And so I think that's where Percy gets all the hate from, which is to me, I think, disappointing because Percy has again we were talking about really great character arcs percy has a really good character oh yeah Mm -hmm. um a very well-developed well-written one and so it's it's kind of a shame that it that goes i think severely underappreciated by a lot of the fandom because they're just more upset that fred's dead and and looking at it from the point of view of fred if fred had lived i'm not saying that like he deserved to die but i feel like throughout these books fred becomes continually more sharp but Fred is and also angry. the first one to, to Like his his Percy flavor back. of comedy becomes very mean very quickly. Mm. Mm-hmm. As as opposed to George, who actually seems to be a bit more docile as compared to Fred. But but you also have to remember that Fred is the first one to welcome Percy back. So that almost makes Fred's dead Fred's death even worse because here he is. He's the first one to welcome this kind of prodigal son back to the family, and. I mean, his last words are he's talking about Percy joking, and then he's gone. Oh, oh that does and hurt. And it's just oh like, my God. Oh, like, from Percy's perspective, that would be horrendous. From everyone else, it's awful. From, But it's also kind of nice, I think, because I feel like George, especially then, would mm-hmm. grow closer to Percy in that way and start seeing, start seeing yeah. things from his perspective a little bit more. And that would kind of... And maybe there was more of a connection between them than we thought. Like, I maybe the reason why Fred was getting so bitter was because they did lose Percy. And Percy was involved in sort of trying to shape them into something oh, that wasn't so it, insane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But um, it, along with Percy, Scrimgeour is there. And he is an absolutely fascinating character to talk about. And actually, Grace, it looks like one of your points actually bleeds with mine. Uh, because yeah. what I wanted to bring up what this whole segment actually made i couldn't believe it made me think of this i was like are you serious brain like this is what you associate it with now this made me immediately jump to mocking jay um when i was when when i was reading the conversation between harry and scrimgeour because essentially Scrimgeour's like, you want to be the Mockingjay? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Harry. <laughs> it's so tempting, isn't it? And Harry's like, actually, no, it's not tempting at all. <laughs> isn't it? There's so many interesting layers to that. Like, there's, I have a lot of questions. And again, uh, one of Grace's points bleeds in really well, which is that is, I think a big one that is worthy of discussion is, are Scrimgeour's ideals justified? Is what he's, is what he's doing, is what he, he's doing here, is it wrong? Like, is it the wrong move, actually, for what the ministry's trying to do? It's desperate. Yeah, I definitely it think is. it is. Yeah. It very much is. But I can see, I, I, I guess, because my additional question with this that I think ties into this is that, did Harry sacrifice a bargaining chip here? Um, I don't think so. Possibly. And I'm actually really, 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 really happy. This is why I prefer Harry to Katniss. 
because mm, Harry mm-hmm. decides he's going to take control of what he's going to do. And mm, mm-hmm. he he's not going to rely on these people who have let him down so much. I mean, Umbridge is still at the ministry, you know? Fudge is still mm-hmm. running around. Like, there's all these people who, when he needed them, they let him down. He's not going to go in and throw himself under the bus for them, you know? Um, it's true. And I think this but is why also, I like him because... Oh, sorry, oh no, sorry. I, I like Harry better than... Ke- well, several reasons. Um, but <laughs> I, I, um, I, I like these characters more because he... And I'm definitely going to get hate for this. <laughs> I just thought of that. Um, I can already feel it. Katniss just... She kind of just lets herself be used. Whereas Harry's yes. like, no, I want to make a change. I'm going to go out there and fight for the change I want to make. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel, I feel like Rufus is not, and he's not in the wrong in the slightest for asking Harry to become this figurehead. Just because it it is a desperate plea, but at the same time, it's a very logical one, and. This man is also a man of of battles and war. Like, he's thinking of things in terms of tactics. Which is why I think that actually blends a little bit into why Stan Shunpike is still being held by the Ministry. I don't know if it's all entirely a ploy in that, like... uh, He's... I think that Rufus Scrimger is just a take-no-bullcrap kind of man. It's like, if this kid is joking around about being part of the Death Eaters, we're keeping him here. Like, we're not, we made mistakes before, we're not making them again. Any sort of red light here, we're just gonna, we're just gonna keep. Any sort of warning. Yeah, no, the the, the little historical, because I don't, sadly, we don't have a Brit on the show to kind of be more informative of British history, but I guess, like, when, just hearing what you're saying, Grace, kind of, like, and not because he necessarily did this this way, but it kind of makes me think of, um, Churchill. Like, Churchill was very good at rallying support by kind of not only the way he spoke, but he was very, he was very tactical on kind of upping morale um, Mm -hmm. when there was no morale to be had. Um, So there's, there's definitely like an element of that there to me. There's also, and you know, I, I also noticed or noted that uh, just as a reminder for the listeners um, that Half-Blood Prince did come out, you know, in the early, uh, the mid 2000s. Um, and again, as we've talked about before on the show, this was post 9-11. And, you know, while I think we, the American readers, tend to center a lot on how American politics are kind of reflected in Harry Potter, I think there's a valid reason for that, because what happened after 9-11 affected the whole world um, and a lot of policies around the world, not just in the mm-hmm. U.S. Well, and a lot, of, um, a lot of terrorist attacks have taken place in the U.K. in the past yeah, decade or so as well. So it's also completely justified in this in this case too. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. completely connected to them as well. Yeah, yeah, so I feel like Harry's Harry's entire idea of the ministry and how it should be working, I hate to say it, but it's a bit idealized. I know that Umbridge is she sorta of really sucks. And the fact she should not be around there at all. Yeah, but I'm surprised. There's gotta she's be still more involved than just <laughs> nixing her. Yeah. No, there's I, a lot of behind-the-scenes politics as to why she's still there, as well as why Fudge is still running around as well. Like he can't, true. he can't completely like abandon the other side of his battle group just because there's a few things that are wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Well, that I think that's that's a good explanation actually for why Umbridge is there because that I would have thought, especially because Scrimgeour seems to be completely informed on what Umbridge did. 
um, from what he's saying. And I'm surprised that to get Harry on his side, since he is so desperate to have Harry on his side, I'm surprised he kept Umbridge in the ministry because that's where he loses. I'm surprised he brought her up. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Bad move. Bad Bad tactics, man. (laughs) It is, it is also worth noting that Harry does have some very impressive, um, uh, kind of sparring word skills here with Scrimjar. I think more than ever in the series, Harry is being a very acute listener. He's mm, kind of taking a fun. Well, he's, he's kind of, this is kind of like, I guess this made me think of in, at the beginning of order of the Phoenix, when Hermione was the only one listening to Umbridge's speech. And then later on McGonagall, you know, Harry kind of half-heartedly repeats what Hermione told him to McGonagall and McGonagall <laughs> says, well, it's good that you listen to Hermione Granger. <laughs> and I think like this is a moment where Harry's finally getting that he has to start doing that. Um, well, it, Cause he does it really well. It reminds me a lot of, Dumbledore's tactic in a lot of things that he's going to mm, sit yeah. and yeah, I, I thought that was fascinating that especially at this part where he makes the like he says definitively I am Dumbledore's man through and through he acts so much like him in his not giving things away in the way he twists the conversation and keeping silent instead of responding to things manipulation mm-hmm. yeah I love it yeah it's so it's a it's a really great kind of little sparring of the minds between Harry and Scrimgeour that does conclude the chapter. But before I end the discussion, and I know this is going to be a major controversy yes. that I'm putting it here, <laughs> but I want to put it here because I know we'll focus on it during the movie discussion, but we have so many other points to hit during the movie discussion. So, but we got to discuss <laughs> here. The movie does this chapter. In full, sans scrimgeour. But it, it is quite possibly the most controversial <laughs> as well as despised scene that the movie the movies have ever done. Um, of course, I'm referring to the fact that they do go through the motions of the Christmas bit um, through Christmas Eve. But instead of going to Christmas Day, they linger on Christmas Eve and the burrow gets caught on fire and is attacked by Death Eaters. Why... Why? What? I guess <laughs> that's all you should why? say. Why? What, what? I mean, why? What are your guys' opinions on it? Because this is like, it, interestingly, this is the. I do think this is the most despised scene in the fandom ever. Everyone um, else yeah. go Where first. Did this I could go from? for like three hours. <laughs> you go first, Grace. You're the guest. Well, I mean. Seriously, I I love seeing the Volda girlfriend as much as anyone else, okay? <laughs> She's a hotty toddy. It's great. But we didn't need to see her in the seat. Like they didn't need to attack. Uh-huh. No one needed that. <laughs> Not on Christmas. How would they how would they even on have Christmas. found it? And even if they did, what's the point? <laughs> Micah, it goes against even like the bad guys. But sorry, what's up? What are your thoughts, Micah? Just not on Christmas. I mean, they could have done it <laughs> any other day. <laughs> no, I think we. If I if I think back to let's say the beginning of Half Blood Prince, right? We we have the bridge scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminded me a lot of that because yeah. it stayed consistent throughout the movie with those types of moments. You mentioned this idea of the terrorism paranoia years post nine eleven. I think a lot of that translated into this this book and into this film. And I think you get that sheer sense of terror when you see the bridge collapsing, you, you get that sense of terror when you know that the borough is vulnerable. And I think that 
if you're arguing for the case of why it worked, that's why it worked. And it, it just went to show you that nothing was off limits, that terror was starting to really take hold. Voldemort was getting stronger. And a lot of the things that we had seen, not we, but the world had seen when he had first come to power was starting to come back again. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that would be my argument in favor of it. Yeah, no, I was actually that that is kind of along the lines of what I was going to say about it, because I'm probably the only person in the world who does not wholly despise that scene the way most fans do. At least I haven't found anybody who relates to my feelings on the scene until you just spoke, Micah. Uh, we should we should talk more. Um, but... No, well, I would just say too because I, I think everybody likes the Weasley family. Yes, as a whole, as mm-hmm. as a unit, and the borough represented something obviously very meaningful to them, but also to Harry, and and, and in a way, it was a place that he really grew up mm-hmm. uh, throughout the books. You know, he spent summers there. Uh, probably didn't get as much screen time as as it could have in the movies, but to take mm-hmm. something so symbolic to the readers, to the to the people watching the movie, to Harry, to the family of the Weasleys, I think, you know, to see it just kind of go up in flames uh, resonated pretty strongly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... That is a really good point. Well, because I always... And I think, actually, I, I, I like your interpretation better, Micah, than my usual argument because that's um, almost purely filmic interpretation. There's no... it's It's not an adaptation issue. It's an issue of the film, and it's then purely the context of filmmaking. Because um, what I always, you know, when you brought up the thing about the terrorism, I think that's exactly on point, because um, little film history for all of you listeners, uh, the Transformers movie came out two years before Half-Blood Prince, and Transformers was one of the big movies. Transformers and Cloverfield, they're two of the movies that changed the field of cinema in a big way, in that they actually import imagery from 9-11 into their movies. Um, it, if you haven't realized that before, go watch those movies now and you'll be horrified. Um, but Harry Potter, not in as much an extreme way, but does take that kind of new vision for film, for disaster, um, moments. Uh, the, the bridge collapse doesn't even, it's not something that's shown in the book. And I know, uh, David Heyman was really like, and David Yates were both very excited to put that scene in. Um, they thought that that could resonate really well with the audience and kind of set up the tension of the film. I think the, the what I what I usually argue from an adaptation issue is that what we're missing from the movie that wouldn't make sense exactly. is that Harry hears about what's going on in the outside world from his friends and from like people getting killed, classmates he knows who are parent whose parents or relatives die. That doesn't happen in the movie, and if it happened in the movie, nobody would care. Um, because you don't know who those characters are. So to replace that, you're targeting the Weasley family because that's a family that's familiar. And like you said, Micah, nothing's off limits. So it, it kind of makes the wizarding world have a little more risk. Now, well, I'm you not, guys are good. I'm not <laughs> saying the scene is well acted on Bonnie Wright's oh, part. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Bonnie Wright. I forgot Wright. about that whole part. But the tying of the shoe thing, so what weird. were you both thinking? Like, that was, that was horrible. Open up, you. <laughs> That's the well, <laughs> And, oh, and I, I, I was disappointed, too, because Lupin is very shorthanded. Rather, he's, he has the exact same lines of dialogue, but he's angry 
because <laughs> the movies loved making people angry. Um, so Lupin has an angry moment that doesn't really make sense. And they also pass off his werewolf stuff with a time of the month joke, which I thought was in pretty bad yeah. taste. <laughs> so, but yeah. That was really dumb. In, in, uh. I guess in theory, the scene works, but it doesn't play out very well in execution, perhaps. Hmm. So... It also doesn't make sense for Deathly Hallows. No, it's awful. Um, I am, like, trying to keep myself calm because talking about this scene is probably one of the guaranteed ways to get me really riled up. I know, Allison. This is, like, you are one of the I, the, the ones who, like, this is your least favorite, right? I nearly, right? like, the... screamed out loud in the theater because I was just so angry. And I, like, cannot even watch this scene in the movie to this day because it just makes me hideously angry. Because... Oh, wow. wow. Because of... First of all... It makes no sense. It comes out of nowhere. Um, like Grace said, there's 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 no way for them to have found the burrow. Um, mm-hmm. And then it just like, in addition, the fact that it's such a long scene and it's not in the book and it I feel like it does nothing for the rest of it. Um, I feel like we definitely could have gotten the tension that they needed of the outside world in other ways. Um and that that this like totally invented scene is in the movie when they cut out everything important they cut out all the two of the memories they cut out all of these other important things that help further not just the plot of this of half-blood prince but of the entire arc of the series it just oh it just makes me so angry that they just decided to throw that in there and yeah but i, I do see uh, where I you guys are coming that. from though with like why but it still just makes me so angry that it's even there yeah. when so much more important information could have been put in instead and they decided mm-hmm. to cut it yeah i, I would I just mean, add though that it's not necessarily to show the tension from the outside world i think that's what they were doing with the opening scenes mm-hmm. i think here it was to show that it can cross into both worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the danger exists and is, and is prevalent in in both worlds. But I feel like mm-hmm. we've already got that. You know, like we we got that in Goblet of Fire. We got that in Order of the Phoenix, and we're gonna get it in Deathly Hallows. So I I just feel like it wasn't necessary here necessarily. I do because the the reason I do, and I would argue that is because. Unlike the books, and this is just a weird thing with books and movies, but, and I, I, I think I've just found this not only with my own viewing experience, but with a lot of people who I've talked to about the Harry Potter series, like, the, the, the clues that are embedded so early on in the series, in the movies, don't really work because the movies were so space far apart and people weren't as obsessed, I think, in the same way as the movie canon. So it's like, if you're reminded of information from way from like Sorcerer's Stone or Chamber all the way in Half-Blood, you kind of are like, oh, yeah. Whereas in the books, for some reason that I can't quite understand, you're like, oh, yeah, that's so clever. Oh, mm-hmm. my God, that connection yeah. is amazing. But when you see it in the movies, you're like, uh-huh. Yeah. Like what? And and I think there's, I mean, there's multiple elements that I guess I could attribute to that. I think a big part of it is different directors. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and what information is left in and left out because there's so much integral world building that's left in and out um, that doesn't make that kind of information shocking or continuous. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and also what, what surprised me, I think what got me most against this scene mm-hmm. is the fact that coming from the perspective of I'm almost always thinking of all the baddies and what they should be doing at this point, if Voldemort knew about where the burrow was, he wouldn't have taken this opportunity to attack. Like even if he did, he would keep that for later when it would be most poignant to be attacking them. And to make an example of this family, he wouldn't want to burn down their house when no yeah. one could see it. He would want to make an example of the entirety of them and make them suffer for what they had done in, in not siding with him. I would say but, that's um, where that's where the scene falls apart the most, is there's no logic to Voldemort. Yeah, there's, no, there's absolutely point. no logic. Yeah. And Bellatrix like wouldn't do something through. unless like that, unless no. Voldemort told her to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there that that I think is developed well enough in the film canon that that's why within the films it doesn't even make sense mm-hmm. I, th- I can see that absolutely i d- I, th- I think though i i do think the scene is there as far as that kind of reminding of how the worlds or the, these two kind of uh, opposing sides clash because there really isn't a lot of that in half-blood um especially for the length of the movie because most of it is the romance and most of the book is that um, mm-hmm. I think this Half-Blood Prince, I, I'm I'm amazed they adapted it as well as they did, because I'd say out of all of the books, Half-Blood Prince is the least adaptation friendly. Um, it's not really made to be a movie. Uh, so, because it's, it's very, it, it's very, it's, while well, it's very humorous and enjoyable, it's, it's slow in plotting as far as plot developments go. Um, so I think that's kind of where the challenge was, but... The debate will, of course, continue on with this scene forever. <laughs> this this scene, yeah, I don't think, will ever be no. settled by the fandom. But listeners, please leave your comments both on this well on this scene and everything else we've discussed. You can do that at alohomora.mugglenet.com with your thoughts on this week's episode because that is where Chapter 16, A Very Frosty Christmas, concludes. All right, and now, as we always do at the end of a chapter, it's time for our podcast question of the week. So this week, we're going to talk a little bit more about Scrimgeour because we didn't didn't quite get to discuss him as much. So the question is, given the circumstances that are surrounding the wizarding world at the moment, is Rufus Scrimgeour doing a good job as Minister for Magic? When he approaches Harry, is he really trying to do the right thing for morale? In comparison to previous ministers we learn about on Pottermore, will he be remembered as a good minister? So head on over to alohomora.mugglenet.com and let us know what you think. And listeners, if you need that information on previous ministers... It's on Pottermore.com. Uh, Rowling created a log of pretty much every minister in existence. So you have plenty to compare to. So have at it. Just a big old minister party. Yep. Grace, thanks so much for uh, joining us. You had some really awesome points Thank for discussion. You. I had a blast. Yeah. I always do. You guys are the best. We were so glad to have you back. Mm-hmm. We know we know you were really enthusiastic to come back, and we're glad this worked out because, uh, you know, Half Blood Prince is a high demand uh, book for for people to be on a little more. Uh, oh, so yeah. we were very glad we could have you back mm-hmm. for it. So we. I just want to let everyone know, like all of the listeners, all of these guys who are hosting, they're super nice. 
Like on air and off, they're wonderful, genuine people. Oh, she's just, really she's are. just saying that because we're super important celebrities. <laughs> they are. They are very much celebrities. No, today. <laughs> no. But that's very sweet. Thank you, Grace. And we're glad. She's just really talking about Michael and Allison. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she's definitely not talking and about this, this about guy Michael, we invited. Really, so <laughs> <laughs> this guy. You guys here. are crazy. I'm talking about everybody that's on this podcast, oh. including um, previous like guest hosts, which are all really cool people. Yes, we do have some pretty... At least they sound like it. We do have some fairly awesome guests, and if you listeners would like to join the pantheon of awesome Alohomora guests, you can be on the show too, just like Grace. It's really not that hard. All you have to do is, first of all, go to alohomora.mugglenet.com and check out our Be On The Show page. If you have some headphones with a built-in mic, or if you have a microphone of your own that's separate from that, then you're pretty much all set to be on the show with us. We, re- we really don't require any fancy equipment. Um, and really, we do stress, if you're nervous, get over it if you want to be on the show <laughs> because it, we're, we are already past the halfway point of Half-Blood Prince. We don't have that much more left. So, you know, conquer those nerves, find your inner Gryffindor, and submit to be on the show. And by the way, while you're at the main site, feel free to download a ringtone while you're there. They're free. All right. Well, there's uh, there are a number of ways that uh, you can get in touch with the show. You can uh, tweet at Alohomora MN. A lot of uh, good insights I'm sure people have from the discussion today, contributions they want to make. So uh, that's one way they can get in touch with the show. They can also uh, check us out on Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting uh, Facebook page. <laughs> that's our slogan: "Open the Dumbledore." I, I, yeah, I, is that a, that sounds like a Noahism? Just <laughs> I'm sure it is. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it probably was. He he <laughs> did he did create the show, so I'm pretty sure that's his. Also, check out uh, MN Alohomora podcast on Tumblr. Uh, you can also call into the show and leave a voicemail at two zero six Go Albus. That's two zero six four six two. Five two, eight seven, and uh, you can also leave an audio boom, which uh, I really enjoyed for the first time uh, <laughs> earlier on in this episode at alohomora.mugglenet.com. It is free. You just need a microphone. So there's no reason why there's not going to be at least five to ten audio booms <laughs> in the next episode. I look forward to uh, listening to all of them and tell them that I recommended. Uh, that you do it uh, please though keep them under 60 seconds um, yeah so uh, those are the multitude of different ways that you can get in touch with the show i hope we have dozens and dozens <laughs> of like 60 second audio booms of people just like telling micah how wonderful he is do it listeners <laughs> <laughs> i want to hear it Uh, And while you're over at our website, make sure you check out our store where we've got all sorts of things, Uh, house shirts, flip-flops, it's flip-flop season, Um, as well as different things with our inside jokes like the Desk Pig, Mandrake Liberation Front, Minerva is My Home Girl, and so many more. Uh, In addition to listening to the show, we have lots of additional content on our smartphone app, which is available all over the muggle world. And if you can't get it, you must be magical because that's the only way you can be breaking your phone so it can't download our app. Prices vary depending on your location. The app includes transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and more. I actually have the app content this week and hopefully for once I will actually get it edited 
and our team listeners, you'll know if I don't. Um, but yes, with that, we conclude our very frosty Christmas, not on Christmas, Christmas in April episode <laughs> of Alohomora. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Micah Tannebaum. And I'm Allison Sigurd. Thank you for listening to episode 134 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. Okay, sorry, before I move on, I'm gonna like shift positions and it's gonna make some noise, so just FYI. To the left, to the left. <laughs> Everything you own in the box, to the left. To the left, to the left. <laughs> Are you actually moving to the left? Actually, yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that worked quite well. <laughs>